This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear my terrific conversation with Melinda Gates at the Executives Club of Chicago. The occasion was the launch of her book called The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. In this conversation, she shares fascinating stories about how, in order to improve the quality of life for those living in dire circumstances, she got educated by putting empathy first. She had some struggles along the way, both inside Microsoft and her work in Africa and elsewhere. But she's become an effective entrepreneur for improving people's lives, and you'll be absorbed by her stories as we all were when we had this conversation. But first, when I look at the week ahead, here is what we can expect. More impeachment. However, keep in mind that once again, Attorney General Barr in coming weeks will be releasing his report on how the Russian collusion story rose up. And that's why you don't hear much from Comey, from McCabe, from Brennan and Clapper, people in the FBI and the intelligence agencies, as a matter of fact, Brennan complained. Why does he want to interview me? He's talking about the special investigator appointed by Attorney General Barr. Well, this whole hullabaloo about Ukraine is not going to stop Attorney General Barr from getting to the bottom of how this whole thing arose in the first place. Trade wars, more on that. Already, the administration is slapping on a new round of tariffs on Europe. The WTO, the World Trade Organization, ruled in our favor that Airbus was getting unfair subsidies and we were ready to hit with tariffs on things like the importation of Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, cheese, and other goodies. But the thing is, Boeing is probably going to get hit by the WTO in coming months. So one would have thought we'd sit down and cut a deal before all of this played out. Nonetheless, I think eventually we will with Europe, but this is why one reason why the stock market has been so volatile. It's been volatile because of uncertainty. Will we put tariffs on auto imports, auto parts imports from Europe? All of this would, would disrupt supply chains. So investment is not going to be made. This is why manufacturing is faltering in the U.S. Investment's not going to be made until we know what the rules of the road are. Oil and gas. Those numbers will be coming out in the coming week on Wednesday and Thursday, and by golly, they weren't good reading on the oil ones last week, which is why oil took a hit. We'll see if things get better this week. And in Hong Kong, that's been brewing for week after week. Now that Beijing has marked its 70th anniversary of the rise of the power of the Communist Party taking over China in late 1949, now they're going to really begin to crack down in Hong Kong. They've already announced they're going to try to make sure protesters can't wear masks. Well, good luck with that. This means more violent confrontations ahead. Please welcome Steve Forbes and Melinda Gates. Well, thank uh, all of you for uh, coming here today, the Executives Club of Chicago. Very, very much appreciate having this opportunity. And being of Scottish descent, thank you for my free lunch. <laughs> this, as you know, is part of the Women's Leadership Series. As you know, uh, Melinda's written the book, 
moment of lift, how empowering women changes the world. But also, when, when you read the book, though, you almost think the subtitle should not be change the world, but uplifts the world. Mm. And you make clear in the book, this is not about bringing women in and leaving others out. It's about bringing women in as a way to bring everyone in. Very positive. Not above men or below them, but beside them. Inclusion. It's not zero sum. Very, very important. It's an astonishing book if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's partially chronicle about the things she does, including some areas that are just uh, astonishing they exist today. We'll talk about that, the cutting and the like. Also, though, it's sort of a, I wouldn't call it, a, I was telling Melinda before, a marriage manual, <laughs> but, it all, but it does have some uh, stories in there that uh, all of us uh, can relate to. And then two, this is very important, how to be effective in getting things done. It's not enough to have great goals, knowing you want to do good things. Sometimes it is step-by-step step to get the culture to change and then let it build on itself. You don't go in with guns blazing and say, I'm good, do it. Not how you get things done, especially with culture. As you said in the uh, film, the laws, you can change laws. They have to be changed, but it's the customs that have to be changed. So you started early in life growing up around science. But your father was, uh, back in the 1960s, was unusual in the sense that half a century ago, more than a half a century ago, great scientist, engineer, but he also made it a point to include women. Tell us about a little bit about your father and the environment he created where you could thrive. Yeah, so Steve, I, I love that opening question because um, in some sense, I didn't realize when I was young how lucky I was to have a father who believed in women in science. It wasn't until I got older that I started to understand how exceptional that was. I grew up one of four siblings, two girls, and then a bit of a gap, and then two boys. And my father, as you heard from the video, worked on the Apollo space missions. And he would often come home and discuss his work, and he would discuss how his teams were better when he could attract female mathematicians onto the team. And so he would go out in the company and try to bring women onto his team. And I would get to go as a young girl to the company picnics and uh, meet these women and men working on literally putting the first man on the moon. And I didn't realize that that role modeling, how important it was and also that my father, as soon as he saw that my sister and I were interested in computers, they came into our all-girls Catholic high school. Um, my dad actually went out and bought, you may not have even heard of this computer, an Apple III uh, for my <laughs> sister and I. In fact, when, later when he met Bill, Bill said, how did you get hold of one of those? There are only about a 1,000 of them made. But he believed in girls being good in math and science. And that was just a profound message, I think, for a young girl. Because one of the things that has held women back is the lack of that kind of reinforcement. And you had an experience with that with high school, the college counselor, who was quite the opposite of what the environment your father's created. Tell, tell us about when the college counselor, in effect, said, don't do it. Yeah, yeah thanks. So um, I, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school in Dallas, Texas was not the most academic school in Dallas, and I was actually kind of angry my sophomore year 
uh, with my parents because I, I, I said to them, you know, look, I want to go to one of these top-notch schools. My parents were really clear that my dad's um, engineer's salary wasn't going to be able to put all four of us through college, um, but that we could go to any college we could get into, and they would figure out a way to pay for it. And um, But I said, look, the colleges I want to go to, I can't get there from my school. And they said, well, you're going to have to figure it out. So I went to talk to my college counselor, and I told her where I wanted to go to school. And she said, oh, um, no, no, based, based on what I'm seeing, you should, you should shoot for community college here in Dallas. <laughs> and luckily, I had the type of personality, like, you're not going to freaking tell me that, right? <laughs> and I went home and talked to my parents. They said, no, 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 we believe you can get into the colleges that you want to get into. And I worked very, very hard uh, to become valedictorian of my class in, in high school because literally I'd gone back to the transcripts of the other girls and the only ones who'd gotten in the types of schools I wanted to go to uh, had been the valedictorian of our class. So you went to Duke, did it in five years, undergraduate and MBA at the same time. So uh, you uh, mentioned you grew up a Catholic, about Catholic. You have a touching story in the book, by the way, of your mother persuading your father to go to a retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, which helped improve their marriage. So mm -hmm. it was uh, quite, quite a household. But one of the critical things you've uh, taken up, which seems very basic, is contraception. And you hold this conference in London. You're doing, doing this work in this area. And you have very powerful reasoning. We'll get to that in a moment. And you make it very clear this conference is not about abortion, mm -hmm. not about population control, not about coercion, all the hot-button things, just about availability, reliable availability of contraceptives, whether pills, shots, whatever, and choice. You want them? Fine. You don't? It's, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. Seemingly a no-brainer, mm -hmm. and millions of lives can be saved through this. And yet, with that, the church that you grew up in, front page, slams you. Mm. says you don't know what you're talking about. You're lying. The lies were not coming from you. Mm. But you got hit on all sides. And Forbes said, well, you learned to take a punch. That was more than a punch you mm. took. Walk us through how you reacted. Something you grew up, institution influenced you. You made it clear in the book. You were doing what you were doing because of what you learned from the church. Mm. And they turned on you. How did you navigate that and in a way in which I think it's very instructive you didn't uh, go to war. You figured mm. out where you could work with them, where not, but you weren't going to let it walk us through that. It must have been traumatic in terms of yeah. how you moved forward. Yeah, yeah. So I had been at that point traveling for the foundation for almost 15 years, and I am out in these low-income countries three times a year, definitely taking government meetings, super important, partner meetings, et cetera. But I always spend time first when I go to a country um, in the communities with the we women and men. I'm there as a woman anonymously, just from the US, a pair of khaki pants, a t-shirt. And I talk to them about their lives. I actually learned this from Warren Buffett's wife, Susie. She was the one who said to me when she was alive, Melinda, if you can go in anonymously and fly under the radar, you will learn so much. And what I had learned from sitting and talking with women, I would be there to talk often about their children's health and vaccines, and women will tell you all over the world, I walk miles and miles to get vaccines for my kids. They keep my kids alive. But when I would be there, the women would eventually say, but what about my health? What about my health? And, and I was saying, okay, and they said, 
why is it that this little clinic that literally would be like about a third the size of, two thirds the size of this stage, why is it I can come here and get my kids vaccines, but I can no longer get those contraceptives? And I was shocked how many women knew about contraceptives and were saying to me, this is a life and death crisis. And I kept wanting to turn away from this issue. I am Catholic, I grew up in the Catholic church, K through 12, Catholic school. Um, I'm still a practicing Catholic and our church teaches that contraceptives aren't okay. And yet so many women were asking us for them. And as I came back and looked at the data, as a world we had stopped uh, providing access to over 200 million women were telling us this. And no country has ever made it from low income to middle income in the last 50 years without first making contraceptives widely available. It is the greatest anti-poverty tool we have because when a woman can time and space the births of her pregnancies, then the kids can be fed, they grow up healthier, they can go to school, she, can, she and her husband can provide for them, and the woman can have some economic means and work. And so here we have this tool and we weren't providing it. And I kept wanting to turn away and I finally just realized I couldn't. And it literally was because of controversy in our country, despite political controversy, despite the fact that 90% or more of US women use contraceptives. We use them in our families readily. The birth control is what allowed women in this country to enter the workforce if they chose. And so I finally realized I needed to stand up and do something about that. And so yes, I got attacked by the Catholic Church, but I had wrestled with my faith and I know what I believe. And I believe that saving a woman's life and saving a baby's life is worth doing it. And if I need to take a, a punch in the gut because of that, I am standing up for what I know to be true. And I know we have differences of opinion on certain things, but one thing I do know is we all do believe and use contraceptives. And so we should make those available to women worldwide. And yet amazingly, despite this battle where the facts were on your side, you still were willing to work with the church on other common issues. You didn't let that get in the way of keeping your eye on the main goal. Yeah. How, how did you bring yourself to do that when it was so personal? Yeah, we, we do work together to this day with the Catholic Church. Catholic Relief Services does amazing work all over the world. And these communities you go into, I have met so many priests in Haiti, in um, you know, remote places in Kenya, in Malawi. And when you talk to the priests alone, they're like, of course I preach contraceptives in my church. Of course I do. We have to save people's lives. And so what I look for is, I look for our humanity. In everywhere I go, I look for where people are the same. And what I know is we care about children. We all care about children. And so I choose to work with the Catholic Church uh, on breastfeeding, on promoting, they're often the only ones in a community talking to farmers about how to plant seeds, how to think about new seeds and um, getting more yield off of their land. And so we pick the common places to work and that's where I work with them. And I will say, the reason I'm also still Catholic is my social justice roots, my roots in believing that, you know, the, the 
um, nuns in my high school sent us out in the community. I worked in the Dallas County Courthouse. I worked in the hospital. I worked in the public school down the road. And those social justice roots that I have and that belief that we can, one person's act can change somebody else's life, that comes from my Catholic faith. And so I still hold on to those beautiful pieces of it. And I disagree with them on certain pieces. Well, you say, I feel I'm following the higher teaching of the church. And you make the point plenty of priests and others believe you're on the right path on that. Yeah, which is to love your neighbor. I mean, what could be more, more simple than that? And loving my neighbor means letting women and children survive and thrive. Just one other thing on that. You make the point later in the book that some of these issues wouldn't rise up and you're again willing to tread on ground that might shake, mm. uh, is the church should allow women priests. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, Why you, how, how, how that would change if they actually talked to people who lived through these things. I think if the Catholic Church had females, not just in certain levels of the church, but literally the highest levels of the church, as priests, it's like any industry. You have to, in politics, it, it, look, equality can't wait. It changes everything when you start to have women in institutions. You, I'm sure you see it here in the executive club in Chicago. You know, But when you have women in politics, in business, in tech, in the Catholic church, it changes the conversation and it changes the focus. And so I also believe if priests were out living in these communities more, not sitting in the Vatican, but literally out in the communities, you know, some of the places that I go in Mozambique and, you know, Senegal and saw what people's lives were like, they would have a different point of view. But without being able to take in everybody's point of view, men and women, our institutions don't change. And it's why the church is often the last institution to change. Um, and that has true, been true for a very long time. And I know if we had women there, we would make different choices. Well, especially as you point out in the book, there were 26 million fewer unsafe abortions in the world's poorest countries in just one year through contraceptives. If you don't like abortion, this is the way to go. You've shown them the way. Absolutely. One of the things that's striking in the book is your realization early on about how you change a culture, mm -hmm. how you change customs. And you say, if you don't understand the meaning and beliefs behind a community's practices, even if you find them abhorrent, if you don't understand them, you won't present your ideas in the context of their values and concerns, and people won't hear you. Mm -hmm. You also described, talking about uh, the great Hans Rosling, about how when you go into a community, the cup is full. You may think the ideas in that cup are not right, but the cup is full. You have to realize that and change it. Walk us through how you, even though you want to get things done quickly, how you came to appreciate you've got to work in the context of these communities if you're going to make a lasting change and change the customs where they feel they have ownership of it. They're not doing it because somebody's wagging their finger at them. Absolutely. Nobody wants you to come in. Just, I think we have to try and always put ourselves in their shoes. So when I sit with women and men, we're often sitting with a beautiful mat in the dust, you know, on the ground in one of their communities. And I always try to think, what if I was on the other side of the mat? What if she was the Western woman coming in to ask me about how we might create change in my community or my home? Nobody would want you to come in and tell them what to do. None of us like that. 
but what they will, they have amazing, like, they're living these, of course, these beautiful, full lives, and they're eking out um, livelihoods in places that you can't believe it, that I often think, how in the world? I try to always say, what would I do if I was here trying to raise three children? And my farm isn't producing much, and the clean water well is 12 miles away, and... You know, and so you have to do that, and you have to work with partners who've been in there working often for 30 years with these communities, who've hired people from the community, who know the community, and then you have to go in in culturally appropriate ways and discuss with them why they do certain things. They've seen a lot. They've seen a lot of death. They've seen, you know, they see all kinds of seasons um, of change. I mean, Farmers were discussing, I have to be honest, farmers were discussing climate change with me long before we had that term climate change in the United States. They would say the rains are coming at different times. And when they come, they're flooding my field and then they come later than they normally do. So you have to go in and discuss with them in ways that they can understand and then you start to educate and you hear what's interesting to them. And sometimes you have to work on what they're interested in first and build up the trust before you can introduce another concept, like say contraceptives. Um, but what I do know is when you talk to moms and dads, they care about having healthy kids. And I've well, never you, you, asked- You used that, uh, was used very effectively. You mentioned Kenya. Yeah. Tupange uh, program. And one of the things that got the men around it was when you have healthy children spaced out, they have schooling, they're more intelligent, and therefore, that reflects on the father. Absolutely. I've never asked a parent what their hopes and dreams are anywhere in the world, and they don't talk about their kids. And dads talk about their kids. And they say, I want a better life for him or her. I want him or her to go get a university education. And so then when you start to say, okay, well, how would that be possible? You know, you've already got three kids. Do you want another one? Actually, not yet or no. And so you, you have to often, in Niger, the way they start is they start with a husband's school. They teach the husbands first why their wives will be healthier and their children will be healthier and that they can then spend money on educating them if they have fewer. So you have to start with where they are. In Senegal, we start with the imam network. The imams will tell you they've all seen a sister or a wife die in childbirth and they say what we need to do is use our network to help you get down to the village level and have that local imam say, you know what, the Quran actually allows for family planning. So you go in and you work in culturally appropriate ways. And just one other thing on that, uh, talking about condoms. Again, you talk about how you have to have choices because if a woman brings up with her husband condom, invites a beating. Right. So one of the things I have learned through this deep work, and I call the foundation's journey a learning journey, is that I used to think, and I think we think of the world as data as being objective. Data is actually sexist. So when I was, and I never would have guessed this, but when I was out hearing from all these women around the world that they wanted contraceptives, I'd come look at the data. And the data actually said about contraceptives at the highest level that it was stocked in all over the world. Well, it turns out when you dig into the data, what's stocked in is condoms, which is great because of the HIV AIDS epidemic. But when I would then ask women, well, well, can't you get a condom at the local little clinic that looks like this? And she'd say, well, yes, but I can't negotiate a condom with my husband. If I do that, I'm either suggesting he's been unfaithful and has AIDS, or I'm suggesting I've been unfaithful. 
And so it wasn't until I looked down in the data and I realized all we were providing as a world were contraceptives. And yet women will tell you, we know women all over the world use different methods at different points in their lives. And women quite often in Kenya or Tanzania will tell you, I need a covert method, particularly if my, that my, so they predominantly use a shot that their husband often doesn't know they get because they say, look, we already have five kids. My husband might want another one, but my job is to feed them. I can feed them. And so they'll often do what they know is right for their kids. One of the uh, areas you uh, focused on among several is uh, education. Everyone says education is great, but share with us some of the stories like uh, we had with Gary Darmstadt about the lowest caste in India and uh, how, how even there you learned how to make progress. Yeah. So... Um, you know, the greatest thing we can do around the world is help people first have their health. Because if you don't have decent health, you can't go on to get a great education. But once we do that, and that's why the foundation primarily focuses on global health, the next biggest thing you can do is to educate kids. And because of the United Nations, luckily some goals they set back in 1990, we essentially have parity for boys and girls at the education level. But when you get to the secondary school level, Girls are pulled out of school much more sooner than, than their counterpoints. And we're not getting quality education to boys and girls at the secondary school level. So one of the stories I tell in the book is about Sister Sudra. Um, Sister Suda, she runs a school called Purna in India, and I've gone to visit her school. And she literally runs the school, it's an all-girls school that she set up um, for the Musahar girls. And Musahar in India is the lowest of the low caste. It is literally the people that they call the rat eaters because their village, they don't have much to eat. So she set up this school and brings these girls in. And what she's teaching the girls is that everything society has told them forever, that you're the lowest of the low and you have no value. She teaches them that, no, you should look up with your eyes. And no, if you have an education, you could start a business. You can do anything you want. You can go to university. And she finally realized that the girls were dealing with so much violence in their village and violence as they would walk, this is a boarding school, but as they would walk home for the holidays, violence, that she brought in a karate instructor and she taught the girls karate. And so they felt powerful. All of a sudden, she had some local philanthropists that helped her raise money and they went to a karate competition in India and they won. These all girls team won. So she went out and raised money, and they went to an international competition in Japan. And she said, and they came in second or third. And she said, think of what it tells a girl to go to a society. These girls had never been on an airplane. Are you kidding? And to go on an airplane and go to Japan and be told, see that girls are treated differently in other societies, it opens their eyes. And that's what education does. It opens our eyes to realize we can be something else, not what everybody's telling us. One of the effective things that uh, you found is that the prevalence of domestic violence is uh, heartbreaking. And but, enormous. And enormous. But the, the just asking women the question, suddenly they realize this doesn't have to be that way. Walk us through just the sheer question begins to change things. Just the sheer question of going into a woman's home with a basic cell phone and having um, an interviewer who's from the community 
we started to do this because we were building a data system once we figured out that the data was so sexist in so many areas. We started to collect a, a women's data about women's lives and particularly contraceptives. So we had a 30 um, question survey on a basic cell phone. You'd go out into these communities in Kenya and we learned that when you go into a woman's home and you start asking her about how many kids she has and childbirth and everything else, you not only learn about contraceptives and whether she wants them and is coerced or can get them, you learn all about her life. And what we didn't realize is the women started telling us, oh my gosh, nobody's ever cared about my life before. The, nobody's ever asked me about my life, but just the act of asking a woman about her life makes her realize that she has worth. And I write one, just one page in the book about abuse, about an abusive relationship I was in. Very hard, hardest page for me to write in the book. But the reason I wrote that page is because I went to a lunch that was about half the size of this while I was working at Microsoft. We rarely went off campus at Microsoft to lunch, but somebody had asked me to go to a YWCA fundraising lunch. And I went, sat like you all at one of these tables, and a woman stood up at the podium and told her story. She's in a little business suit, told her story of escaping abuse of her husband and how she'd move with her three kids to the YWCA shelter. And she hadn't realized how badly she was being abused till the husband started abusing the kids. And I literally was driving my little Honda Prelude back to Microsoft and I thought, oh my God, that's the story of the relationship I was previously in. And abuse silences women and it takes away their self-confidence. And yet we know more than a third of women around the world are abused in one form or another. That can't be. That has to change. Another subject, uh, searing one, is child marriage, how mm. prevalent that still is. And it has, among other things, point out the leading cause of death of girls 15 and 19 is childbirth because they do it so early. One of those saddest parts in the book is how these young girls are tricked. They're told by their parents, tomorrow or whatever, you can have a party. Walk us through what actually happens. Yeah, so young girls often will be in school up until about age maybe 13 or 14 if they're lucky. But if they're in a village where there's child marriage, the family is going to marry them off into another village, into marriage. And um, often a girl will go off to carry water because that's what girls do in the developing world. They're expected to carry water. And when I tell a story about one girl, when she comes back to the home, she's then they lock her in the house and she realizes she's carrying water back for a ceremony, but it's the ceremony of her own wedding and she is 14, and she tries to get out, she screams, she tries to get away, she can't, and she realizes that that's it for her. You know, she's gonna be married off, sent to a village that she's never been to, you know, somewhere maybe across the country, and she's gonna be pulled out of school. And I, I met with a group of girls who had already been married off, and then a group of girls who knew they might be, and it's one of the most heartbreaking things because they know that, their educa that education will change their lives and they're being taught to be more powerful and that their family will marry them off. And so country by country, this is something that is being worked on. Um, you have to have laws, then you have to have follow-up. And really, you have to get the village to commit to not doing it. There are reasons that they marry their girls young for honor, uh, sometimes for resources, um, but it is marrying a girl before age 18 is just not right. Very closely related to that, uh, whether you call it gentle cutting, 
one of the two most chilling words in the book is the words, the tradition. Yeah. You don't even mention it in these villages. Everyone knows what the tradition is. Walk us through how, why it happens and how you got a village to change and then recognized one village isn't enough. You got to get others so it mm. doesn't come back. And this gets again to taking something that's horrible, making a change, but doing it in a way in which it's going to move out in a positive way and not wither away because it's an isolated yeah, so I, I write a piece, of, a, a part of the chapter, because I don't want you to think the book is all downbeat. There's lots of upbeat no, things in this book. But I try and go through all the societal things that hold girls and women back, both in the developing world and in our own country. Um, and one of them is female genital cutting. And I won't go too deeply into that at this lunch, because um, I'll let it, leave it to you to read those few pages in the book. But one thing I do know is the way to change that, anytime you want cultural change, is you get a community educated about why they don't need to do a practice anymore. And then the whole community has to commit to changing something, whether it's abuse, whether it's marrying girls early, whether it's female genital cutting. We know from great research that once the entire community comes together, men and women, and commit to not doing something, and then they work with the villages around them to stop cultural practices, that's how you get change. And that's why in this book, I'm talking so much about equality. Equality abroad, equality, I, a lot of the book is about equality in this country, because we have to commit to equality. And when you do that, and we commit to equality as a world, and you start to get more women coming out for election, like we saw in the last election, right? And you start to say, hey, it's not okay in this country to have less than 5% of Fortune CEO um, CEOs be female. It's not okay to have venture capital in this country go less than 2% of it to go to women-led businesses. That's not okay. We want gender equality. Once we commit to it, then we can start systematically working on it as men and women. One of the things you emphasize in the book is conversation and empathy. And in agriculture, your foundation's done great work. You talk about this proving seed yields and resistance to disease and floods. But you had to wage a battle to get the founder and other experts to realize that's not enough. You must talk to the real farmers, in this case, the women. Definitely. And cite the story of how you had a seed that could improve rice yields, but it missed two things that would have defeated the thing or would have defeated it if they hadn't talked to the women. One was the length of the plant, and the other was the, how quick to cook. Walk us through how, if you leave the women out, it's not going to work. Yeah. So we were a very science-focused foundation at first, and we still are. We were working on vaccines and global health, malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS. Then we started to see that you had to be able to deliver vaccines and these other tools and get people to agree to use them if you're going to actually get tools out there. The big, what I call, missed idea in the foundation was this gender work. And this is not something Bill or I ever thought in a million years we would work on. But what we came to learn was that if we assume a new tool that comes out, let's say it's a new vaccine or new HIV AIDS medicine or a new seed that is drought resistant and that might work better in the fields in Tanzania or Kenya or is pest resistant, 
that when we tried to put that seed through the seed system in Africa and assume it would get out equally to farmers, farmers are 50-50, men and women in, in the developing world. And then the women do more work. The women do more work. It turned out to be a false assumption because the seed systems don't reach women. And guess what? Women might won't, will tell you, hey, if, even if that is a more pest-resistant seed and maybe I get a little more yield on my farm, but it takes longer to cook that bean or it's a kind of rice that my family doesn't want to eat, I'm not going to cook it. It takes longer. All I have is my time, and I'm the one in charge of... Uh, fixing the meals, and that may take five, six hours a day. And so we had to learn that we really had to look at these gender pieces of the equation. One of the things, too, uh, is blind spots. We see something, but because it's, we see it so often, we don't realize how unacceptable it may truly be. And uh, one of them is uh, the subject of uh, unpaid work. Yeah. Uh, walk us through unpaid work. Again, we hardly think of it, but it's uh, really has impacted women, yeah. not only in this country, but especially in developing countries. Well, and you have five girls, so you may see, you've probably seen some of this too over the years, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Certain, certain assumptions and stereotypes. I've yeah. got the scars to show it. You know. <laughs> so I was out, um, uh, my oldest daughter at the time was 15. Her name is Jen. We went out and lived with a Maasai couple in Tanzania in their home. And loving couple, Anna and Sonari were their names. They both entered the marriage lovingly. They were in a loving relationship when we came along. Six children. And Jen and I would follow Anna around all day as we chopped wood, um, as we went 12 miles to collect the water, as we cooked in the cooking hut. Sonari would be off working on the fields and in, in the stall that they had up at the road. And as I talked with Anna, um, she talked about how after I was there many days, I said, well, I, I was asking her more about her marriage, and she said, well, there was a time I almost left my husband. And I said, what? You seem like you have this amazing relationship. And she said, yes. But at the birth of their first son, Robert, uh, Sonari came home, and Anna was sitting on the doorstep with her bag packed and the baby in her arms. And she said, I'm leaving you. I'm going back to my parents' home in a more lush area of the country. It's too arid here. And Sonari was heartbroken, and he said, how, what do you mean you're leaving me? And she said, I can't walk 12 miles a day and get, get water and collect firewood and cook and nurse our son, Robert, who we both care about. She said, I just physically cannot do this. And he said, what can I do to help? And that simple question, what, her naming what she wanted, which is all this unpaid labor and time she spent, and him saying, what can I do to help, changed everything. So. So he, Sonari, said, well, okay, I could carry water. So he starts going and carrying water. Now, first of all, Maasai men never carry water. You are unmanly if you carry water. And all over the world, it's women's task to carry water. So the men start seeing Sonari going back and forth 12 miles a day to fetch the water, and they all said, oh, he's bewitched by his wife. They made fun of him. But slowly but surely, they started walking with Sonari and they started to realize how long the journey was. And so slowly but surely, they all started to go on their bikes to collect water. And slowly but surely, they started to say to themselves, why don't we get the community together and build a water pan closer to where we are? That is the story of unpaid labor. Women all over the world, including our country, do all this work that we don't think about. So in the United States, every single day, 
women do 90 minutes more of unpaid work in their home than their husband does. And our economies around the world are built on the back of this unpaid labor. If you look at over the course of a woman's lifetime and you take the average of unpaid labor every single day, over the course of a woman's lifetime around the world, it's seven years of her life. Now, seven years, I don't know about you, Steve, but I think you and I could probably go get some graduate degrees or we could do something else we want to do, which is work on our own health or work in the workforce. So I'm not saying everything a woman does at home she doesn't want to do. We all want to care for our loved ones, take care of our elderly parents. But you hit on the three R's. Yeah. Give us the three R's. Recognize the work and what it is. Is it cleaning the dishes, doing the laundry, shopping, homework? <clears throat> so recognize it, figure out if you can reduce it, but then redistribute it. And I talk about in the book how we have to have these courageous conversations in our home to really look at this 90 minutes in the United States. Because if a woman wants to run for office or she wants to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or she wants to start a business, that's 90 minutes that maybe she could do 30 minutes of and her husband could do 30 minutes of it and she could figure out how to farm out 30 minutes of it. It changes what she can do with her time. And you persuaded your husband to take one of your kids to school at least twice a week. Yeah, so I have one of these courageous conversations in my own home. <laughs> so um, Bill was still CEO of Microsoft. Um, I had stayed home to raise the kids. I think you come into your marriage with assumptions maybe from how your parents operated, which I know we both did. And so I just assumed certain roles in our household. And with the birth of our first daughter, Jen, she came time to go to kindergarten. We both completely agreed where we thought she should go to school. But I said to Bill, oh my gosh, uh, let's just keep her in the neighborhood school. We'll start her in third grade at that school we both think is so great because it's 45 minutes round trip from our home. And he said, no, 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 Melinda, I really feel strongly she's starting kindergarten. You know, what's the problem? And I said, are you kidding me? I can see the years ahead in the minivan on the road. You know, we already had two kids and we wanted another one. And he said that simple question, what can I do to help? And I was like, I was literally like, are you serious? And he said, well, he, and he offered, he said, I could drive her two mornings a week. Now for him, this actually meant an hour commute because the school was far away from our house, past our house, back to Microsoft. So he started doing it. And he reframed it for me too. He said, you know, it'll be good time for me in the car. It'll just be good mom, daughter time. So three weeks into the school year, um, all of a sudden, a mom sidles up to me at school. She said, did you notice anything here different in the classroom? And I said, yeah, like all of a sudden, there are all these dads coming in and dropping their kids off. <laughs> and she said, yeah. We went home and said to our husbands, by gosh, if Bill Gates is running Microsoft and you drop off his daughter, so can you. <laughs> well, this gets up to your own relationship with Bill and also the foundation. And you came to the conclusion with the foundation, everyone would assume, given the culture we have today, Bill is running it mm. or was the, the public face of it. Mm. You made the decision that could not be. You, made, you also pushed no siloing. Oh, that's Bill's work. That's Melinda's work. It's got to be joint. Yeah, you'll have your different interests, but it cannot be 
this stereotype, silo, whatever. Walk us through that, how you've made that come to pass. And then, before we leave, this shows how you get things done. You have to describe the saga of the annual letter. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so we were totally running the foundation together, absolutely. Um, and we believe in equality, and we both sit at the head of the table, we both make decisions <coughs> on strategy. But I wasn't speaking out very much. Partly I'm a very private person, partly I wanted to give our t kids time to get settled in school. But as we were going along, more and more of the press started writing about the Bill Gates Foundation. Bill does this, and Bill does that. And, and I'm looking at these things, and I'm thinking, he's working at Microsoft, and I'm spending all these hours, you know? And, and I'm like, that is just not true. Like, you know, who made the decision on this? And it was like, and so finally we talked about it at home, and Bill said, well, you probably need to step out more, Melinda, in public. And, and, I, and I started to think, yeah, if I'm telling my daughters at home to use their voice in the world, and my son, I need to role model that. And we actually had to go in, though. You'd be amazed how many situations we were in where I got completely, I'll use the word that my teenager used, dissed by a prime minister or a president. When Bill and I would both walk in the room, they'd talk to him as if I wasn't there. You know, and so I would just wait. I learned to wait. And like two questions in, I would just insert myself. And all of a sudden, it was like their eyes opened. And they started to realize, oh my gosh, like she knows her stuff. And they're running this as equals. We had to do that with the press a lot, too. And so... Um, well, describe the incident, too. You didn't come into this full-blown, where you told Bill on one occasion, don't listen or leave the room when I make my remarks. Yeah, we... It was part of your own development. It was part of my own development. So one of our early speeches that we did together as a couple, it was a huge convention center, and uh, we were both going to make remarks at the podium, and I was super nervous. And... And Bill said, well, why are you so nervous? Like, you know this stuff. And I said, yeah, but I don't speak much publicly. And he said, well, what, what's making you the most nervous in the room? And I said, having you there. And he said, oh, okay then. Now I'm so comfortable speaking in front of him. Now I'll cut him off if I need to. <laughs> he probably doesn't like that. But um, he said, okay, well, how about this? He said, I'm, he was going first at the podium. He said, how about, and we were going home together in the car. He said, how about after I give my remarks, I will then leave, I'll go backstage and leave. And he said, I'll leave the building and I'll go drive around the car and come back and pick you up in 10 minutes curbside. I was like, done. And so we <laughs> did, and now I, and then I got very comfortable speaking. So partly you have to look at where your own fears are and you, partly you have to look at what is society telling you. Um, and so, and you have to just practice. And over time, I got much more comfortable taking stages. I, now Bill can not only stay in the room, I can say to him, give me a little space to talk, honey, if I need to. Um, and he doesn't talk over me and I don't talk over him. And partly, but we have had to have that negotiation and partly I have to also role model in society when other people do it to us, that that's not okay, right? That society, we should assume that women are at the helm and that we have all these places of equality. And one of the areas you did it was describe the, I know we're a little over time, but it's an interesting story, the annual letter, how you brought that change about. Again, you may not be able to do it frontally at first, but you can make it happen. Describe it. Sure. So um, Warren Buffett had said to us, he's our co-trustee at the foundation, and um, he had said to us years ago, you know, I think it would be great if you all wrote an annual letter, much like he does for Berkshire Hathaway, and just describe to people how you think about the work. And we both thought that was a great idea. But at the time, I just was like, oh my gosh, raising three young kids, Bill's working at Microsoft. And I said to Bill, 
I just don't have time to like put pen to paper. I just, I don't. And Bill said, that's okay, I'll write it. So Bill started writing it and it turned out he really enjoyed writing it. And, um, and then as I became more speaking out in public and particularly as I was leading this huge contraceptive initiative that we talked about, I finally said to him, okay, like the kids are well into middle school, I'm ready to write my part. And he'd gotten very comfortable writing the annual letter and he liked it. And I said, mm, you know, I, I wanna have a piece of this. And so I first did a sidebar the first year. Second year, I wrote a third of the annual letter. Third year, I wrote half of it and now I always write half of it. And it just was, again, we had to have that conversation about, okay, we've made certain assumptions in the past, given our roles, but how do we move forward with equality in the marriage? And so part of what I am trying to do with this book is help people understand my personal journey so that we can look at our own personal journeys in our home, in our community, in our workforce to say, how do we get true equality for everybody around the world? Because when we do that, society is better off. One other thing, you very, very critically important, you point out in high tech, when you graduated, 35% of people in computer sciences were women. Today it's 19. Venture capital, even worse, only 2%. And you make the point, the opportunity cost. If women aren't in venture capital, there are a lot of ideas, projects that may not appeal to somebody, a guy, but may have a real marketability if a different set of eyes and uh, background can be brought to it. You uh, make the point that perhaps part of it is the games are now so violent, so everyone thinks games are just for boys. Uh, you have to be a nerd, you know, it's clerical. So where, where do you see us going from here, and what can we do to uh, break that barrier down? It, it, it's not because of biology, it's because we, we were almost there 30 years ago. We were. We were on the rise in computer science, like medicine and law, for women in those, um, graduating those degrees. And as you said, it has gone way down. What we can do is to role model for young girls, and we can give pathways in, different pathways in. So the best uh, colleges now that are actually attracting lots of women in computer science, they are doing something different with that freshman class. They're not having theoretical problems, they're having real world problems that attract women. Women wanna work on fixing things and fixing things they know in society. So you can change pathways in, you can also, uh, help role model for young girls. We can show that computer sciences don't have to look like a guy in a, in a hoodie. Um, we can also move our money. I was just out seeing something we were talking about at the table earlier. I saw 1871 this weekend, which is an accelerator for women entrepreneurs and women in STEM in Chicago. You all have more female entrepreneurs uh, than any other city, and tech has become 10% of your economy in Chicago. We need far more incubators all over the United States and we have to move capital to women and break down the barriers for women. We have made it far too hard for women to get venture capital funding and yet there are incredible women with amazing ideas and people of color. So I'm not only using my voice in that area, I'm actually putting funds that I expect to get a good Aspect return on, ventures. but I'm putting money into that. Aspect yeah. Ventures. And there are other issues that we could discuss. Amazingly, in Russia, they have 450 categories that are by law denied to women. You can't be a carpenter in mm -hmm. Russia, crazy stuff like that. 
so it's custom and law. But before I let you go, talk about uh, with, with women trying to rise up and what the culture has done, uh, a word that also brings chills as you describe it, perfectionism. Mm. Talk about that Hewlett-Packard study and how women have to get over the idea. If it's not perfect, you, you shouldn't go near it. Yeah, I think we all have to look at where we have perfectionism, where we drive ourselves. I, I have a lot of perfectionism or had, and I had to really look at that. And partly it comes from our, uh, ourselves, but partly it comes from society saying you have to look perfect when you go out and you have to be perfect or you have to act a certain way. No, we have to be able to be ourselves. And so I want young girls to be able to look up and see three dozen different phenotypes of women in every field, politics, finance, the law, medicine, technology. We should be able to look up as young women, just as young boys can look up and they see three dozen different phenotypes of male leadership in all different sectors. Because then a young boy can look up and go, I don't want to be like those six guys, but hey, those three or four, I want to be something like that. Young girls need that. And it's why we all, men and women, need to push for, for equality. And I would ask people to look at it in three areas. Look at it in your home, have the hard conversations. Look at it in your community. Uh, vote for people who are putting paid family medical leave on the table so that we, men and women can work and care for their aging parents or their young kids. And then look at it in your workplace. Is there equal work and equal pay? Is there transparency? Are we moving, are you making sure that females have roots in, open up your power networks, help a young girl or person of color get that first internship. It builds their resume and it changes everything for them. Well, in closing, I want to quote from your book. There's no denying that I hope to advance my beliefs. I believe that all lives have equal value, that all men and women are created equal, that everyone belongs, that everyone has rights and everyone has a right to flourish. I believe that when people who are bound by the rules have no role in shaping the rules, moral blind spots become law, and the powerless bear the burden. Mm -hmm. Those are my beliefs and my values, and I believe they're not personal values, but universal values, mm -hmm. and I think you make the case. They're universal values. Thank you very much, Melinda. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. So, thank you. And now, my Reads of the Week. Well, we're having baseball playoffs. And there's an interesting article. It's entitled, Forget Small Ball, Home Runs Will Decide Baseball's Postseason. It's written by Jared Diamond for the Wall Street Journal. You can find it on WSJ.com. Now, this season in baseball, you've seen a record number of home runs. Numerous teams set records for home runs for each club. And the consensus used to be that in postseason, pitchers won't make the kind of mistakes they do during the season. And therefore, you have to get runs the old-fashioned way. Get somebody on base, bunt them to second, sacrifice them to third, that kind of thing. Stealing bases. But Diamond makes the point. That old wisdom is out the window. Those who can hit the long ball are going to do it. They did it during the regular season, and they'll do it again in the postseason. Interesting article. And by the way, why are so many home runs being hit? Well, batters are willing to strike out more often to get that long ball. However, there's no mistaking it. The ball is juiced. How? By tightening it. And when you have a tight ball, it travels further. 
Boy, we saw that this season. Another read? This article is called Electric Cars Versus Gas Cars. Is the conventional wisdom wrong? What rings true intuitively isn't always backed up by the numbers. It's written by Bill Wirtz, W-I-R-T-Z, at fee.org, F-E-E, dot org. It's the Foundation for Economic Education. And he points out what goes into the making of batteries, for example, for electric cars. One of the key ingredients for a battery is cobalt. Cobalt, a lot of it comes from the Congo, where a lot of the mining is done by youngsters, young as seven years old, getting cobalt dust in their lungs. Nothing comes free in this world. And the sobering article shows we got a lot of work ahead if we ever want to wean ourselves away from fossil fuels. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.